Take your Bibles with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's nothing quite like stepping off of a plane and into the pulpit, as I uh, literally have just done. So I'm thankful to be here. Praise the Lord for the opportunity once again. I'll share more about that here in just a few minutes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I just told Pastor Ken, I feel like I've been running for an hour. I mean, it's pretty, pretty true, almost like it, trying to get off the plane. So, all right. The Word of God says, verse 1 of chapter 2, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. When we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, we might, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly we be behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged each one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's go before the Father this evening and ask for his help. God, I do pray that you would go before us tonight. I pray that even now, Lord, in the midst of scurrying and running around, that you would clear my thoughts. Allow me to be clear with the word of God, that we could look at it accurately and be able to apply it appropriately. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, what a weekend. I spent, uh, I flew out Friday afternoon, Friday night actually, uh, to Denver, Colorado to be a part of my Marine Battalion. Uh, we had a change of command that was there this weekend. And so I got to participate in that event that was going on. And with that comes a lot of things. You have a lot of people coming in from every location that we have. I think I've spoken about how my battalion is about 1,500 Marines spread out over six different states. So when they send the chaplain out to do these different things that I get to go do, I, I, I travel quite a bit and it's quite a vast uh, area of coverage for me to do. But one of the great blessings of having a change of command is not because I get rid of the battalion commander, but although that's a, that was a sad thing to see this, on this one, is he's very supportive of chaplain ministry. But it's fantastic to meet up with people who I've been developing 
gospel opportunities with, gospel relationships with. And I enjoy, over the last four years, having conversations with so many of them that we just pick up right where we've left off, no matter what location we have been at, whether it's in Bridgeport, California, at at a Mountain X exercise, whether it's in Albany, Georgia, in the middle of nowhere, or it's in Lubbock, Texas, where in the middle of August is no place that anybody wants to be, including Phoenix, Arizona. It's hotter with the humidity over there. And I personally, I was flying, as I was flying home tonight, I thought, you know, what a privilege that I have. And really, it became to, it overwhelmed my heart to say, thank you, that you as a church family allow for me to have these gospel opportunities that I would not get to have otherwise. And so from that, I say thank you. Discipleship most often works built on relationships. Discipleship takes on relationship building. Not every relationship that we build is the same as somebody else. Relationships can be quite messy. Relationships can be quite fun and entertaining at times. They can be quite encouraging, quite challenging. And as Paul starts here in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he gives us a practical pattern of this practice of discipleship. One of the fascinating parts of Paul's pattern is his view of teamwork. When you read throughout the 1 Thessalonians letter, you find Paul often using the first person plural, not just his own writing and himself, but he's using the aspect of a team. We talked a little bit last week about the fact that the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. It's never meant to be grown alone or to be worked alone. It's it's meant to be about a community, not individuality. And Paul gives us a clear example of what that teamwork begins to look like. Discipleship was never meant to be be completed as just a one-on-one endeavor. It requires that we, and I'm including you and me together as a church family, take on that responsibility. You may not be the one to interact with the Marines that I get to interact with. I may not have opportunities to interact with people that you get to interact with. However, our interaction could look something like this. You can be praying with me as I interact with them. Praying something specific to the fact that says, God, would you give him boldness? with the gospel would you allow for him to have opportunities to present the gospel and then have courage when those opportunities present themselves I am always encouraged greatly when I know that I have others doing the spiritual work of prayer as I engage in the front lines of battle aren't you to know that you have somebody behind you praying and asking the Spirit to work in the hearts of the people you interact with on a daily basis, knowing that our intention is for Christ to be seen and magnified and that their, their heart would be changed because of Christ, that's encouraging. Sometimes it's convicting because I know I have people that are praying for my opportunities with the gospel. And I think to myself, man, I just squandered that one. I was nervous about what they would think about me. 
I wasn't so bold with that because I felt like there was going to be repercussions that might come out of that or adverse actions that I might not look. Most of the time, when I'm having those thoughts, it's really self-reflective, not really the reality. Not walking in the Spirit with the Spirit's help. Folks, when we actively work as a team in helping others develop relationships that lead to the gospel, we begin to see God transform hearts in ways that only He can do. Last week, we began to look at this pattern of discipleship by seeing that discipleship always begins with the message of the gospel. We must see the gospel as more than just good news but a transaction that has occurred on on our behalf. That Christ died on the cross because of my sin. My sin nailed him to the cross, and it was his love that held him there for me. God's, God's wrath was satisfied, and Christ's righteousness was imputed to me in exchange for my sinfulness. And the finality of the gospel occurs because of the resurrection, that Christ not only defeated sin and death through his resurrection, but Satan was now defeated as well. And it's important for us to understand and see that this imputation can only take place when I accept this gift on my behalf, when I acknowledge his death in place of my sinfulness. There is no Jesus plus There's no Jesus plus church attendance that gets us to heaven. There's no Jesus plus live a moral life that gets us into heaven. There's no Jesus plus workouts in good deeds, hoping that one day we would be acceptable before God. Anything other than the gift of Jesus would pervert the gospel. And this is what Paul is is combating in Thessalonica and so many other places that he has gone to. But you know, the same can be said in our culture today. The perversion of the gospel isn't anything new, and it's seen all over the place. It is important for us to understand that the message of discipleship revolves only around the gospel. It's where it begins. It's where its focal point is. Seeing what Christ has saved us from and what he has saved us to, as 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10 indicate to us, is a part of the gospel. But it's not just about salvation. It's also about our sanctification or our growth in Christ. The message of the gospel motivates our growth in Christ, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says. This leads us naturally to where we will spend most of our time tonight in our message of an ideal picture of discipleship. That we have to see tonight, it has to have the right motive. What is the motive of discipleship? That motive we'll find in verses 4 through 6 is pleasing God. The theme of chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, is the character of the messenger's mission and really not focused on the results of their labor. So let's look at what he says here in verses 4 to 6. Paul begins to explain in verse 4, but we have been approved by God. The focal point is centered on who God is and what he is doing in their life and giving them the commission to go, to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God 
who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. If we have a motive, the right motive of discipleship and pleasing God, we have to recognize that God is the one who tests our hearts. We know that God is omniscient, but do we often live like it? We know the theological fact that God knows everything, but oftentimes we deny that reality when we give in to the sin pleasures of what we want to do or accomplish, or when we give in to our own pride in thinking that I could gain something out of somebody else's life in the things that I do. We find here in 1 Thessalonians 4 or 2, verses 4 and 6, that God tests our inner motives. He tests our hearts. Why is it that we're serving Christ? Am I looking for man's applause? Do I serve in the nursery so that people can come up to me and say, thank you for taking care of my child? Well, that's nice, and we want to say thanks, and we have to show hearts of gratitude for taking care of our children. Is that really our motivation? Do you really feel gratified when somebody just comes and says thank you, or do you look for more? When they don't say thank you, how do you respond? That's the test of our motive. When I'm serving around, doing, the, doing the, the labor of our yard work around the church, the maintenance landscaping, do I do it in such a way that draws the attention of our people to see it and hope that they'll grab my attention or grab my name and say, look at what this person has done? Or is the motive just to say, I want God to be honored and be a good steward of the place that God has given us? so that God is truly pleased. The success of one's ministry does not rest principally on one's good reputation before others. It is rather God's evaluation of his ministry that is paramount. God tests our inner motives. God himself is our witness. You know, we're really good about telling our kids that God watches and sees everything. But do you really believe it in their actions? Are they seen? Are they demonstrated by how you live and interact? We sing the song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking down in love. Most of us probably have taught our kids that song or heard our, our kids sing that song. But when it comes to our motives, are we singing the same song? Or is that an exception to that song? The power of our words can be multiplied by the character of a life that is consistently in line with the gospel. In essence, let your life match the words in which you use. The longer I was a youth pastor, the longer, the more I began to understand the concept that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. To keep my heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. I've used the illustration a couple of times that when we were at a, we'd be at a restaurant on a Wednesday night after a canvassing activity and a song would come on and our teenage or junior high girls would be doing some things in the, in the McDonald's and my first thought was something that was not inherently evil or wrong but it really 
was about a comedian line. And it drew my heart to think, wow, how many instances is my attention drawn to a comedic act rather than encouraging words of Scripture? Rather than seeking to edify believers around me? Rather than looking to encourage and challenge growth in Christ? That doesn't mean I can't have, enjoy a, you know, a good comedian or the, the, the acts that are on with that. But it tells you the intake when it reveals itself in the outtake. We can say that we are truly serving to please God, but the reality is sometimes we look over our shoulder to see if people are really seeing the work that we are doing. We kind of do this in our own families, don't we? I am, I am hate. Like, my wife gives me one chore in the house. One chore. That's it. There might be a couple more now. I just don't remember them. But I know there's one chore specifically. And I am not very good at this one chore. In fact, I detest this one chore. I don't know why. It's not that hard. It's not that complicated. And it really doesn't take all that much time. But for whatever reason... I just hate taking out the trash. I can't stand it. I don't know why. I mean, it's not even that it smells. I mean, we're past the diaper stage, so it doesn't smell much anymore in that way. We have a bigger family, so food doesn't just sit in the trash can. We have to take it out pretty much daily or every other day in where we are. But for some reason, I really just hate taking out the trash. And every once in a while... I will have this inner thought and say, you know what? I'm going to surprise my wife by taking out the trash. I don't know why I think it's going to surprise her. It's my chore. It's my one job. But yet, I take out the trash, I empty it out, and you know what? Sometimes I even go above and beyond that by taking out the recycling as well because it's right behind the trash can, and I think I'm going out there. I might as well do both. And then I come back in. I spray the trash can with that disinfectant stuff, and I put the trash bag in, and I stand there and wait. And sometimes it just feels like forever before she comes in the kitchen. I mean, we're always in the kitchen. We have four kids. They're always hungry. And so I have to think of some, you know, precarious way to get her into the kitchen. And I stand next to that trash can and I might just pull it out just slightly. And she doesn't see it. So I pull it out further. And by this time, I'm starting to make a little, <coughs> you know, <coughs> And she just looks at me with her soft, kind eyes and says, am I supposed to be impressed? <laughs> the whole moment is ruined. But isn't that kind of sometimes what we do? We look for the attention. Our motives really aren't about pleasing God. Although he tests the heart, he's the one that's really the important one what you're looking at. But I see the second idea in this motive of discipleship and pleasing God is that trials will come and we need to endure them. When Paul is writing here at the beginning of, second ch of, of chapter 2, he refers back to Philippi. 
In verse 2 of chapter 2, he refers back to when he was in Philippi. He was in Philippi right before he came to Thessalonica. And if you recall the story in Acts chapter 16, when he's in Philippi, he's not well treated. They don't put him up in a five-star hotel and say, hey, tell us more, Paul, please. Let's take care of you here. No, they bind him and Silas up in the stocks and they put him in prison. In fact, they don't just do that, they beat him because of the message of the gospel. And the trials come, and then he comes into Thessalonica. They, they flee, they get away from Philippi, they're asked to leave, and they leave because of that. They come to Thessalonica, and they spend three weeks ministering in the synagogues on the Sabbath, preaching the gospel, seeing hearts transformed by the power of the gospel to where it causes some division amongst the unconverted Jews, and they hate the fact that their religion is being messed with. And they're asked to leave again. And the culture in which they are, the, the people that are around them in this new church in Thessalonica is beginning to get some back chatter on them saying, look, the man who came and told you this didn't even stick around through this. He left. So really, what good is this message? And I think Paul was maybe a little bit concerned by that. He refers later on in the letter why he sends Timothy. Because he was scared about, did they really invest in the gospel? Were they really changed and transformed by the power of the gospel? Or were they quickly, like the Ephesians, turned away? And yet, it was the testimony of Paul and Silas and Timothy in the midst of their trials, their ability to endure the trials, not because of their own strength, but because of the, the message of the cross and Christ in them, the hope of glory that allowed for the Thessalonians to see the change and say the gospel is worth the price. The word translated opposition here was used of the word struggle. In essence, they, uh, a struggle of an athlete engaged in training or in a contest and was used frequently as a metaphor for moral struggles. It connotes the strenuous effort required to overcome an opponent. It's the same word that is used in Hebrews chapter 12, to run the race with endurance. The agony is where we get the word from today in our English. When I say run, I run with agony. That's usually how I think of running. It's very agonizing to me. The reality, though, of this word is to keep moving forward, to endure the struggle. Paul and Silas and Timothy are not seeking to gain sympathy from the results of their persecution as if their experience was the proof of the sincerity in their beliefs. They didn't want their persecution to be what stood out to them as a way of saying, look, you can, you can go through the same thing and this is the security of why we believe because if people didn't really, uh, it, it, there wouldn't be persecution if they believed, if they didn't really have a, a problem with our message. The fact that it converts or the fact that it, it transforms hearts is what's getting to their attention. I do think it magnifies the grace of God. When Paul says in 1 in Corinthians that my grace is made sufficient in your weakness. We've already referenced this, but the test of our motives is our reaction when others receive recognition for their labors of love and we don't. Are we willing to keep forward, keep going? I think sometimes when we think of discipleship, we think the struggle is too hard. 
I can't work with this individual. When I see somebody come to Christ and I want to see them grow in Christ, I think, well, they're just not growing at the pace that I want them to grow at. We think it's just not worth it. Maybe they're not interested. We're not called to measure their growth. We're called to measure growth by how God's changing us and transforming us first. They endured trials, but then they also didn't back down from teaching truth. Verse 2, they were emboldened by the power of God. The message of the cross brought boldness in the, in the reality of what Christ, what God would do through them, and it was through the help of our God that enabled them to continue forward. God produces the good news, a message that in turn turns others to preaching concerning God. I think the last aspect of this motivation is they maintain their integrity through it. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the, the culture in which they were, that when these Thessalonians were to make this decision to follow after Christ, their businesses would be impacted. And the reason their businesses would be impacted and their families would be impacted by their decision was it would be, it would be common for the, the person to go and make a business transaction uh, with a sacrifice to some sort of deity. Not always was it a sacrifice to a deity. There was oftentimes a, a prostitution act that would come with it. It was grossly immoral. And they knew the change that would come would impact their society. They knew they would have a heart change, that it would, it would begin to impact their family's finances. And yet, Paul comes in with the power of God to preach the, the truth, and he's not going to back down because his integrity is intact. We see in verse 5, his moral integrity Right? He says in verse 4, we, we have been approved by God to be entrusted, even so not to speak as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Neither at any time do we use flattering words. As you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. We weren't looking for you to pay us back, nor do we seek glory from you or from others. They also maintained a financial integrity. Paul could have used his apostleship to, to financial gain. It would have been perfectly acceptable. I'm coming here with a message and we're going to establish this church and I am worthy of my, of my due. But yet he says, I'm not coming here with that because people are going to... The common thread of what's happening in Thessalonica is that you're only here, you're only listening to this guy because he's asking you to pay something. There's something, he's in it for something. What is he in it for? And Paul says, no, 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 to bypass any of that, I'm going to be a tent maker. So that there's no question as to the integrity of the gospel. When I remember that God is the one that tests my motives, I am free to minister with a desire to please only Him and no one else. While others might get the byproduct of His working through me. So what is discipleship to look like? How are we supposed to disciple others? This is probably really what we want to know. 
And I think the method of discipleship is where we tend to think of programs and resources rather than relationships. Folks, we have to get it in our mind that discipleship is all about relationships. And programs and resources can be a tool to help further that relationship that is being built. Therefore, the method of our discipleship is having a love for others. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Paul says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own, also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring day and night, night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel. And here in verse 11, jump down with me. As you know, we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. Paul is going to use the illustration of parenting to demonstrate what it means to have a love for others. He begins with a mother's touch in verses 7 and 8. You know, there's a reason that kids go to their mom quite often. They display qualities about them that naturally draw attention to themselves in this way. Not because they seek the attention. It's just who they are and how God made them. When my kid gets hurt in the yard, who does he go to? Not dad. Dad says, suck it up and keep going. They call for mom. When my kids are hungry, they don't call for dad. It's not uncommon. I'll be at home sitting around and just doing diddly squat. And my wife, the kids will come to my wife and they'll say, Mom, I'm hungry. And she'll say, but what's your dad doing? They don't come to me when they're hungry. When my kids need sympathy over struggles they are going through, they call for mom. I don't doubt that your kids are probably in the same boat. When my, sh- when my kids want sugary treats, they call for dad. Because they know I'm more likely to give it to him than their mom is. But the text here outlines, why, why do they call on mom? Because she's gentle. She nurtures them in a loving and compassionate way that guys just don't typically do. Now, this isn't across the board, across everything. I know some guys that are more into this. They're more gentle and nurturing in their personality. But the reality of most moms in seeing this, they give of themselves sacrificially. He uses the same term here, my dearly beloved, or uh, my brethren, in verse 8, because you became dear to us, It's the same word that he used in first chapter one in talking about God calling them beloved. It is who they are. They give of themselves. And Paul is using that illustration in the same way to demonstrate to the Thessalonians that they have given of themselves. The word soul is being used here, not just their own lives. When he describes his life, their lives to them, he's using the term soul, meaning their entire being of who they are. They were loved ones as if they were his own children. But then he gives in verse 11, 
the father's composure. There's three terms that are used here to kind of demonstrate what a, what a father tends to be like. There's exhortation. The urge to follow a pattern of conduct. In essence, most kids would look at this and say, when, dad, when, dad, when I'm in trouble, I'm going to get a lecture from dad. This is the exhortation, the, the command to change, to follow after a certain type of conduct and a pattern of conduct. The encouragement. Sometimes dad can be the greatest cheerleader in their child's life. You might have in your, or, or, or New King James gives the word comfort. Has the idea of consoling in times of great pain. While falling in the yard may seem significant, insignificant to a dad, they do sense when a child is in great pain. <laughs> I didn't think it would ever be true to say this is going to hurt you more than it's, I mean hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I thought it would always be the other way around. This always hurts you more than me. But when you look in your child's eyes and you come with love for them that says, I don't want to have to do this, the pain that you feel on the inside is not so that I am mean to my child in discipline, but so they understand my heart of love. And yet, after that time of exhortation, I give them a hug and demonstrate how I can comfort and encourage. Then he uses the word urging here, or entreating. Conveys the idea of insisting or requiring that a certain course of action be adopted. Oftentimes seen as a warning or watch out. Aren't dads good at that? Watch out. Warning up ahead. Most of the time, those warnings are because they have done that same act and they know what's coming. They have learned from their lesson, probably, and they don't want to see their children go through the same action. But the reality is a wise father knows his children and their differences and that they need to adjust their approach to their children. A good father encourages and provides guidance. The love of a parent for their children is not only a matter of words. A parent doesn't just say what needs to be said to their children. A parent gives of themselves in love for their children because they are beloved. Paul's function as their spiritual father was to train believers in order that they should live worthy of, the, of God. So Paul and his team didn't just give them the words of the gospel and then let them figure out the Christian life on their own. They poured out their own souls. They gave them everything they had. They emptied themselves for them. They gave them the very transparency and vulnerability of their being. Discipleship is when we give of ourselves to one another. It does require me to pour my life into someone else because I love them as a father or as a mother. And I want to see them grow in Christ-likeness. Just like my parenting style will adapt to the needs of my child, I must realize that discipling one another also needs some fluidity. Isn't it amazing how different your children are from each other? 
I look at our four kids and I think, wow, where did Eliana come from? She was what we call our wild child. You never know what you're going to get with this sassy little girl. I mentioned last week that Joey's my mini-me, just a very nonchalant guy, walks around. I still remember the day he was walking down that foyer, down the lobby, or this way we were still in, um, I, was, I was a youth pastor, and he's just walking down with his hands in his pockets. He was two years old, and I just remember looking at that kid like, I don't got a care in the world, and I don't care who you are. He's just a nonchalant kid. Lynn Ray likes to be a mother, very much so. And Eddie, there's a lot to say about Eddie. And they're all unique and different. He's athletic, smart, asks a lot of questions, very intuitive. And yet I've come to realize that with each one of them, my parenting styles change a little. What works for Eddie doesn't necessarily work for Eliana. What works for Joey will not work sometimes with Eliana. I use Eliana as the, the main illustration because I think sometimes the reality is some things just don't get through to her head. Sometimes when you, you just pull out the paddle for Joey and he just bawls. Eliana says, I dare you. <laughs> she doesn't actually say it, but you can see it in her eyes. They're so different from each other. But it just reminds me of how people are so different. Sometimes we want the reality of God's Word in our discipleship process to take a certain model and a certain theme and a certain practice and just continue forward. And the fluidity of this means I have to be flexible. There will be times where going through a resource will be of great value. We bring in the bookstore foundations as a good example of this. You know, this fluidity sometimes gets displayed itself in, in a way that we might want to see them get through a book or a certain amount, in a certain amount of time. There's 12 chapters. We could get done with this in 12 weeks. If some of you that are going through that know that's just not reality, well, unless you're really motivated. Sometimes we may get frustrated that they just don't seem to be interested in getting the work done between the times that you meet with them. That can be frustrating, is it not? Looking at this parenting model, I might find that just getting time with them and working through a page at a time may just be what they need. May not be the pace that I wanted or looked for, but I'm helping them grow in their fellowship and walk with Christ. And sure, you can challenge and encourage them to work ahead, get a portion done, make a little progress to be a little further. However, you can just take the time and work through it with them and be even a, a greater help. I think sometimes the reality some, when we look at discipleship is it's us trying to teach and coach them. As we mentioned last week, that we're not coaching. We're simply playing the same game, which means I probably need to be growing in the same fashion. I might be a little more advanced in my knowledge of this discipleship material, but it's still valuable for me. Why? Because the Word of God never comes back void. And I can always learn again and learn more. Again, this is the teamwork of discipleship. It is the reminder that I need to be growing in my own walk with Christ, even as they are. 
I have one more point and we'll be done tonight. Our role as disciples is to grow in our maturity and help ones, the ones we are growing in discipleship, also grow in maturity. I'm growing and I want you to come along the journey with me. That's got to be the mindset. Come with me. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. And Paul gives that demonstration of what it means to come along in the journey by saying, walk worthy of God. In verse 12, what does he say? That you, in this whole pattern and picture of discipleship, would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I wish I had more time tonight to really display and kind of work this out a little bit more. But I think we can really get the reality from everything that we've looked through at this picture of discipleship that my life needs to emulate and imitate Christ. That if I'm to be holy as God is holy, it's the application of walking worthy. It's not something that I've arrived at. It's a daily decision and a moment-by-moment dependence within our conduct, right? To live worthy of God makes God the focal point. The one who determines what is appropriate, what is not. But then our calling. What are we called to? Not the things of this world that leave us empty and longing for more. But we're called to his kingdom My identity is a child of the king. And I'm called to God's glory that lives a life that reflects him. The parental pictures of of our spiritual discipleship here in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 12 clearly demonstrate that discipleship must be balanced. It's not enough for us just to be compassionate, tender, and caring as spiritual mothers. We also need to live uncompromising, pure, and exemplary lives as spiritual fathers. Lives that in their motives and actions set the standard for all to follow. Furthermore, we need to teach the truth faithfully, building up one another in spiritual wisdom and displaying the courage of conviction to come alongside and exhort and call our spiritual children to obedience through both strong discipline and tender consolation. These efforts lead us as disciples to live in a way that honors God, who has called us to his eternal kingdom and glory. I mentioned earlier ways that you can team up with me in discipleship opportunities. Did you know we provide some of those for you? Let me encourage you to get into a care group. That's an avenue where discipleship is developing into a culture, challenging and growing, encouraging one another, praying for gospel opportunities, testifying of God's work in our lives. Join an ABF, Adult Bible Fellowship. Be an active teammate in cultivating a culture of discipleship here at Tri-City. Let's pray. Let's pray.